Okay. We're ready. All right, we're ready to start. Welcome. Um, I'm very pleased you can make it on this freezing cold night. My name's Bev Skeggs. I'm the director of the Atlantic Fellows Programme in the International Inequalities Institute here at LSE. I'm really pleased to welcome tonight Professor Aaron Davis to deliver the lecture along with Polly Toynbee and Joe Earle. And we will be launching Aaron's book called Reckless Opportunists, Elites at the End of the Establishment. Aaron is Professor of Political Communications at Goldsmiths College. His research covers political communications in government, political parties and pressure groups, trade union settings and economic media and political sociology. He covers a lot of ground very well, I must say, as well. Aaron has conducted research at Westminster, Whitehall, the London Stock Exchange, right across business and finance networks and amongst the major political parties and across the trade union movement. He's interviewed over 350 high-profile individuals for his latest book, Employed in Politics, Business, Finance, Journalism, Public Relations, NGOs and Civil Service, more of which you will hear about tonight. Responding to Aaron's lecture is Polly Toynbee, probably one of the most important voices um, in Britain, uh, really, really important to me and fantastic to see here, offering alternatives. She is a Guardian award-winning journalist and has written some amazing books, including Unjust Rewards, which I should recommend everybody should read if they haven't already. And tonight she will be uh, also launching, well, launching her book, Dismembered, <coughs> How the Attack on the State Harms Us All. Following on from Polly is Joe Earle, um, who's an economics campaigner, was one of the founders of the amazing student political movement called Re Rethinking Economics, which threw a spanner into the works of economics curriculum and has led to lots of different spawning groups and activities. Um, but he's also author of a book called Econocracy, uh, The Perils of Leaving Economics to the Experts. It's published, as is Aaron's book, by Manchester Capitalism, part of the Manchester University Press. So tonight we'll be examining Britain's dysfunctional leadership. We're producing a new generation of leaders who although financially much richer, have lost coherence, vision, influence and power. Their failings are not only damaging the wider public, economy and society, they are undermining the very foundations of the establishment itself. So for those in the audience using Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is, it should be on there, LSE establishment. Um, and please, can you put your phones on silent, even if you are tweeting all this time? This event will be recorded, and hopefully it will be available on a podcast, as long as there's no technical difficulties. And after the lecture, there'll be time to ask questions. There'll be a roving mic moving around. Aaron will speak for approximately 30 minutes, followed by responses from Polly and Joe for 15 minutes each. And then I'll open questions out to the audience. So, can we welcome Aaron Davis? Thank you. Um, 
thanks first of all to LSE for hosting this event and uh, thanks so much to, to Polly and Bev and to Joe for joining me tonight. Um, it's a great help. Um, in terms of today's talk, um, I think um, um, most, people, most people here today probably um, and beyond have found themselves thinking about the dysfunction of, of contemporary politics. They've been thinking about whatever party you're in, um, whichever way you voted in terms of the EU referendum, you've been looking on with a sort of sense of, of horror, confusion, surrealism. Um, and the surrealism is, is about why are these people in charge still in charge? Why do they keep messing up in ever more complex ways or, or multiple ways and yet they're still here? If you look at business and finance and you think about the economy, you're thinking, why 10 years, more than 10 years after the crash, are we still in a process of economic stagnation? Um, why are wages stagnating? Why are more people in poverty? Um, why aren't things getting better? Though we are continually told there's light at the end of the economic tunnel, we continually see CEOs and financiers pat themselves on the back and uh, award themselves bigger bonuses. Um, how is this all happening? Um, and for many, many of us, the, the natural inclination is to think about individuals. Um, popular culture, political commentary focus very much on individuals. Individuals are the cause of the problem. And if you look at it that way, we're just unfortunate in that we have a, a current crop, a bad crop of political leaders or economic leaders. Um, People like Boris, people like Michael Gove, people like David Davis, those people negotiating Brexit. Um, but also, if you look across, people like Philip Green or, or, or Richard Desmond, these sort of people who seem to be more interested in themselves and the moment than, than doing what's best for the country. And by that, that reckoning, it's only a matter of um, changing the leaders, waiting for the right leaders to come along. And if we wait long enough and we get our Clement Attlee, or we get our, our Churchill, or we get our Thatcher, then, then somehow things will turn out right. If we get our Charles Rolls or Henry Royce, then business will be restored and, and everything will be all right, hopefully. Um, well, for me, um, it's more than just individuals. Of course, individuals are really important. Individuals do all sorts of things, for good and for bad. But what I also find myself thinking about is much more about systems and conditions. Because um, the more I interview and I talk to people at the top, the more I look at their biographies, I look at their working conditions, and you talk to them about them in quite a bit of detail, you start to see certain patterns emerge in the types of people that reach the top. And you think about the systems and conditions that give us today's leaders, and you see those systems and conditions producing a certain kind of leader. If you look at the, the systems and conditions of leadership and action on a day-to-day -day basis, again, you see the conditions are, cer are certainly orienting leaders towards a certain way of behaving and thinking that may not be, in fact, may be counter to the best interests of the public and certainly the best interests of their own organization. Um, and after you've interviewed enough of these people and you've looked, you've read their biographies, you've looked at their backgrounds, you've asked them, you start to see patterns. And having interviewed 350 of them over a number of years, normally in groups, you start to see clear patterns emerging, not only within 
a group of politicians or permanent secretaries or, or financiers, you get to see similarities which spread across all these different groups. Um, they all have problems of, of uh, infinite competition, personal risk, uh, um, um, information overload. They're all kind of wooed by fashions. They're all working around certain issues. And um, more than that, um, you realize the very things that have um, disrupted all of our lives in the modern world, new digital technologies, globalization, turbo capitalism, neoliberalism, all these things that have disrupted different areas of working life that people are upset about now, have also disrupted the lives of, of elites of themselves. Um, yes, many of them have driven these changes and they've done very well out of them, but they're also, when you talk to them about their lives, they're also at the hard end of what's happening. And recent events around Brexit and everything else have only kind of confirmed my views, so I felt compelled to sort of put together this book to use all the sort of interesting material you can't really put into social science referee journal articles. Um, so hopefully it's more interesting and readable than that. Um, so I'm going to talk about some of the things that come up in the book. And the first, the first real issue is to talk about who gets to the top. Because um, again, if you look at leaders long enough and you look at what happened in the 80s, the kind of leaders we had in the 80s and the 70s, and you look at what's happened now, and I don't want to just kind of sound nostalgic, but you look at the changes and you start to see these patterns. And if we start with politicians, um, especially over the last 20 years, from the the Blair years, the Cameron years, um, and the kinds of people in those cabinets. Again, you see quite a bit of change. And it starts with, the, with interviewing people. And uh, at one point, I was interviewing Claire Short, not long after she stepped down from the cabinet. She was completely bitter about lots of things New Labour, lots of things Tony Blair. And she, was, she felt like one of the old people, and the new people were coming in. And I said, well, well who, who are these new people who are taking over at Labour? And she thought, and she said, oh, I don't particularly know how they are recruited. These sort of bright young things, they'd be sort of Oxbridge, and then they'd work for the FT, and a lot of, a lot of them would work for the sort of media, media policy presentation, that kind of bench. Not real experts, in other words. Not people who spend their life in an area. Those kinds of people have been largely squeezed out, and she listed all these kinds of experts that used to be in the party. And as I pushed her on this, this media issue, she then said... This very voracious 24 hours media seems to be changing politics. I mean, look at Bush. He's very similar to Blair, this sort of folksy Texan thing that sort of works as a media charm, this sort of works as a sort of charm thing in America, and sort of good on the media and a tight entourage around him, rather incompetent. And if so, we are in trouble. Because Churchill couldn't come through this. Attlee couldn't come through this. Attlee, Churchill couldn't make it. Um, then you, you start looking at the cabinets and the cabinets of the Blair years and the Cameron years and the kinds of people, the younger generation. And again, you start to see certain patterns. Years ago, politicians, especially senior cabinet members, had, had long careers in business, in law, in education, in union work. And you look at the newer generation and you look at their, what they studied and their careers and you realise that, of course, a lot of them went to do politics, philosophy, politics, and economics. Um, 
specially designed degree for aspiring politicians. A lot of them didn't become local councillors, didn't have a long career. If they had a career, it was relatively short, and it was very likely to be in media, PR, journalism. It's very likely to involve work in think tanks or as party researchers. And if you put it all together, well, basically, from university, they very quickly moved into the Westminster Triangle. They, they're expert on what you need to do well in, in Westminster. They know the networks, they know the media, they know what happens, um, but they don't have that expertise. There's something more important to note, and this is a, a feature that comes up again and again, is, is they're mobile, they're very mobile. Your, um, politicians have always had a precarious life to a certain extent, um, but the terms of office have got shorter and shorter. Um, the average politician now stays in power for 8.7 years, or an MP for 8.7 years, less than two terms. The average minister uh, lasts 18 months to two years. That's been the process of the 21st century. Yes, you get prime ministers and chancellors who last a lot longer, and unfortunately for us, you get health secretaries that stay in power rather too long. Um, but most people in charge of most departments in the last 15, 20 years have been there on average 18 months to two years, not a lot of time. So you get people with little expertise, little vision, coming into positions in which they have very little time to get expertise or vision before they move on again. People are very good at media management, very good at networking. If you think about that, it's not a big leap to move on to people like Boris Johnson or Donald Trump. It's not just politics, though. Um, if you look at the civil service, um, and I looked at the permanent secretaries of the civil service a few years ago, and you find that three-quarters of them, their career involves a degree sort of in economics, a career in finance, a long period in the treasury, um, nothing to do with education or health policy or policing. And hardly anyone who's a permanent secretary has been there for more than four years. Again, the average stint, two to three years. Um, moving on to CEOs. CEOs, again, at the same period, I looked at the FTSE 100, all the CEOs, a third of them hadn't been in position for more than two years. Um, Two-thirds overall have been less than five years. Um, there's the same sense of mobility, but there's also the equivalent of the PPE professional politician expert. Go back to the 1970s, 1980s, a lot of people who did well in the business world, they had degrees in engineering, sciences, law, different professions, design. Um, over the years, there's still some good people with those backgrounds, but those qualifications have declined. Um, if you look, go back to the 1970s, uh, professional type business degrees business and accounting and economics and business, or um, less than a third of, of FTSE, of, of, of chief executives had that sort of background or qualification. Um, but as time has gone on, more and more, it's the equivalent of the PPE degree. Um, now three quarters of uh, top business chiefs have a sort of MBA or a business and something kind of qualification. Um, And the biggest route to the top is accounting and finance. If you look at the people who've reached the top, something like 50% of them have an accounting qualification stroke degree and moved up for the finance route. 
And all of this has implications. Um, has implications for things like ideas and innovation and, and alternative thinking. So at one point I was asking my CEOs, what, what's the secret of your success? What, what about you that got you to the top? And you get all sorts of answers. And one answer that sort of struck, stuck with me, shouldn't have stuck me, but it did. Well, you have to have the old good idea. I once said to somebody, I don't expect to have a good idea more than once every three years. And he said, Francis, I had one good idea in my old career and he was successful. <laughs> there are a few that talked about their innovations, the great things they did. But there were a tiny group of this 30 top CEOs I spoke to. Most of them talked about earnings per share and takeovers and team management and technical stuff. They didn't talk about ideas investment, innovation, new things. Um, so it's a similar story you get in the business world. People with competency, competency with numbers, management, but not necessarily ideas or innovation. Um, to sum it all up, you, you get people now increasing at the top who are professionalized. They're non-expert, they're mobile, and they're unattached. They're non-expert, they're mobile, and they're not attached. Um, and all of that has repercussions for the way they then choose to manage at the top, which is what I'll move on to now, the social conditions of leadership. Um, there's a lot in the book about the social conditions, the everyday cultures, um, the values, the practices. Um, I'm just going to give you a, a flavor of some of the issues that come up. And one of those is, is personal risk and decision-making. Because if you talk to enough people at the top, you've got a great sense of fear, not just greed and drive and ambition, but fear. Fear about risk of failure, personal failure, personal sacking. Um, and when you talk to people more and more, you, you realize that newness is a risk. Something new is risky. Uh, this is... Stephen Hester, who was then head of Royal Bank of Scotland before um, George Osborne had him removed, just before then. And he said to me, if, you, if you're doing something different from everyone else, you have to say, what is it that makes you think you're cleverer than them? It's a higher bar, actually. And as you talk to these people in charge about doing things differently, new things, you get this risk word coming up again and again. Britain has one of the worst records of all the leading economies on research and development in their, their corporate sector. Really bad record, low percentage. But as you talk to the people on tops of British business, you start to realize why. Um, research and development takes money away from the, the bottom line. Of course, that's, that's the first risk. But more than that, if you're trying to develop something really new and different, and you're investing in that, what happens if you put all this money in and it doesn't work? What happens if a rival firm pips you to the post and gets there first? What happens if the technology changes? And what if you've just set up a, a big DVD manufacturing factory and we all switch to streaming? And I heard similar stories quite often. Big investments suddenly go to waste. And then the final indignity is you get there first, you have the award-winning product, you're there doing wonderfully, and within months, your rivals come along, copied your ideas, and doing it cheaper. 
And for all these reasons, you get old hands saying things like this. This was, um, oh, what's his name? Alan Parker, who, was, who had led Whitbread, Whitbread. He came to the conclusion, after giving me this long explanation, so from all of that, I would say from my experience that I would definitely always want to see it working elsewhere. Rather than paying the price of being a leading-edge innovator, I'd much rather be a fast follower. You don't lead, you follow. You follow closely behind. That's the way to do well. Um, and that takes us on to fashions and herds. So if you're leading or if you're following, you're looking for the fashion. And leaders follow the fashion endlessly. Um, they're forever, whoever you're talking to, a financier, a leading journalist, a politician, they're looking at what everyone else is doing. And they're looking for various reasons, one of which is this risk issue and self-protection. Um, if you're a journalist, the scoop is, is dying. You put all this investigative work into something, and within minutes of you getting it up there, your rivals have, have taken your scoop. Yeah, you've got the status for getting the scoop, but every other news organization has it there within minutes if they want it. The financial value of that scoop is, is gone. But people think more and more about, well, what don't we have? We need to have what everyone else is having. And so you get loads of journalists, very award-winning journalists, saying things like this. It makes everyone, this is Peter Riddle, um, leading journalist of the he was a leading journalist of the Times. It makes everyone risk averse because the news desks go, why haven't we got this story? So people are ensuring that they will cover something because someone else might have it. A lot of energy goes into that. Um, it's the same in high finance. Comp fi the financial sector is supposed to be allocating capital to the best places. That's what all of the theory says taking money away from firms that are rubbish and dying and outdated, putting it in the new. But if you talk to all the big, inve the big investing people, that's rubbish. That's not how it works. Um, it only matters that they think that everyone else is going to be investing in these things. It doesn't matter what the company does. I've talked to lots of financiers. Oh, this is a brilliant company, but you can't say that's a brilliant company because you don't know when it's going to do well. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a great company. That's not an acceptable explanation for your bosses as to why you're in investing in it. Um, so it could be making diet water. It could be making unicorn meat. It could be making radioactive lollipops. All that matters is if everyone else is investing in it, the share price is going up, that is really, that's the bottom line. Not whether it's an innovative, exciting, interesting company, unless it, the coincidence is everyone thinks the same thing of that at the same time. Financiers work on fashions, and fashions become bubbles. They became the dot-com bubble. They became the financial bubble of, of 2007, before the crash. And when you talk to financiers, they know it's mad. They know unicorn meat doesn't exist. But you know, this is what happens during a bubble. There's always a reason. Yes, the company's making losses. Yes, there is a financing deficit. But the prospects are so good that by next year, everything will be hunky-dory and tickety-boo. And it got to that stage that the next issue from Goldman Sachs was going to come in on a one pound and start trading at two pounds, and you couldn't afford not to have any. It really didn't matter what the company did. And it really doesn't matter what the company does most of the time. Because the simple fact is, if, if you're in a top position, you have personal risk on the one side, 
You have organizational risk on the other side, and somewhere over there, maybe you have wider public risk. And um, unfortunately, as competition intensifies, as scrutiny of, of leadership intensifies, and there is a lot of performance scrutiny that goes on now, um, so there's a, a weighing takes place in the minds of leaders. Personal risk versus organizational risk. And more and more personal risk or, or even ambition is what's going to win out. Um, so you get business leaders knowingly undermining their own companies to improve the share price in the short term. You get finances investing in unicorn meat because it's going to go up in the short term. You get politicians switching their political allegiances, their, their, their policy ideas, their stances, in order to attract a certain demographic. So we find ourselves asking, did David Cameron ever believe in the green crap? Did Tony Blair ever believe in equality? Did Boris Johnson, does he like Europe? Um, another theme is the numbers game. And this comes up everywhere now, everywhere I look. Um, comes up in the, the recent lecturer's pension dispute. Um, leadership is more and more a numbers game, or another way of looking at it, it's leadership is a virtual reality game for accountants. Um, why is that? Well, for one, as you would have gathered from what I said a bit earlier, so many people in top positions, the civil service, CEOs, parts of politics, finance, of course, highly numerate people. But there's a second thing. Um, big ideas, policy ideas, monetarism, a new economy, new policy ideas in education, health, policing, all these things, it's very hard to actually demonstrate these ideas work. But if you're a numbers person, you do something else. You come up with metrics, targets, numbers, because you can hit the targets and the metrics and the numbers, and they become proxies for the big ideas. So it doesn't matter whether monetarism works or not. If you can hit the inflation target associated with monetarism, then it's working. Um, this is, um, had a, several, when you interview people in, in um, the civil service, top advisors, you get to see how big ideas get transformed into targets and numbers and metrics. This was Vicky Price, who had been co-director of government economic services and New Labour. Um, and he, she explained it to me. The Labour Party manifesto used to be translated into a number of public service agreements. She said there were thousands of these which got reduced. So there were all these targets, things that had to be met over a number of years in individual areas that they wanted to select, child poverty, education, environmental stuff, blah, blah, blah. I was a person responsible for PSA number one, productivity for the UK economy. So it would bring lots of people in, and we would measure our productivity. There was a whole system devised by the Treasury. It's a traffic light system, interestingly. Um, there's a third reason why it becomes a numbers game. And that is because so many people have got to the top not on their ideas or their innovation or their vision. They've got there because they're good with numbers. And the way to evaluate themselves and for other people at the top to evaluate them is through numbers and targets too. Um, 
It's all about numbers and targets. Aaron, it's five minutes. Okay. <laughs> Getting through it. I'll speed up. Um, and you can see how this percolates down from the top. So if you're in, the, if you're in health, oh, if we get more people through A&E in four hours, that means the health service is doing better. If more people, if more nine-year-olds know what a fronted adverbial is, school education must be getting better. I don't know what a fronted adverbial is. Put your hand up if you know what a fronted adverbial is. <laughs> one. One. My ten, one, oh great. My, my, te, my ten-year-old knows. And she knows all the things in her spag test that um, she's been doing recently. Um, it's a foreign language to me. Um, that takes us on to gaming the system. Because the next step is gaming the system. If you're numerate, you're good at playing the game. But also if you're numerate, if you're a leader, you co-construct the game. It's like you are the game player and the game's master creating your own virtual game um, and constructing it so you can win. Um, this is an interview I had with a, a FTSE top 100 CEO, very successful, explained the secrets of his success. Shareholders will focus on what you ask them to focus on and what you keep on talking to them about. So it's simple. You want problems. You highlight the problems. I've always highlighted the problems. You say, these are our problems, then you fix them. They'll reward you for it in your stock price. You just need to align with the same metrics that you're giving the shareholders. And then you'll get a big bonus. Your salary will go up because you've, you've played the game. And that's precisely why bankers kept getting huge bonuses even though they were being bailed out by the state. It's precisely why CEO pay keeps rising hugely, way above inflation, normal salaries, any signs of productivity or growth in the company that they're managing. But their salaries keep going up, even though there's no change everywhere else. Um, there's a similar game that goes on with top civil servants and ministers about gaming. Um, because you can achieve targets, not well, on the one hand, by squeezing people below, making them hit targets, reducing their salaries. Um, but you can also gain the system. And if you talk to enough people at the top, you realize they can change the conditions. They can change the measures of inflation or growth or poverty or what counts as these things and how we calculate them in order to make sure that they hit the target. I had a great conversation, not a great, a hor horrifying conversation with someone nearly at the top of the treasury a few years ago. Um, we were, at some point, we started talking about PFI, Public Finance Initiative. And I said, um, well, how do all those debts figure into your calculations? And he looked at me sort of a bit confused, PFI debts, as if that wasn't a problem. And I said, there's over 300 billion built up in PFI debts. Isn't that an issue? And his response, I doubt it was hundreds of billions, but you know, we have a national debt in the trillions, so. <laughs> and I didn't know if I was more horrified that he didn't know that <laughs> this top, top official didn't know about the 300 billion of debt or he just didn't think it was important. Um, I normally keep a straight face when I'm interviewing, but my, I think my jaw dropped at that moment. And he looked at me and he thought, oh, I better, better say something else. And he said, well, he justified it by saying this. Look, if you're a government, you want to have more things. You want to announce you're going to open new schools and hospitals and so on. And if you can find a way of doing that off balance sheet, that's quite convenient. Um, at which point... Um, 
you think, yes, we are in trouble. Um, but they're not in trouble because they move on. This issue about mobility, they're already moving on before the brown stuff hits the fan. That senior treasury person has moved on. He's now on the direct, he has directorships in several places earning a lot more money than he was at, when he was at the treasury. It doesn't matter to him what that 300 billion, it could be 2 billion, it could be 300 billion, it doesn't matter to him. Most of those CEOs I interviewed three or four years ago, they've <coughs> moved on. And they know if you talk to enough CEOs, they know they're going to move on. They can spin the plates just long enough until, well, most of the time, not always, and they can get out before it all goes wrong. This was, this was what one CEO said to me. He really explained it. I mean, they all, they all said this happened. They just didn't do it. And he was the same, but he explained it most eloquently. Um, you read about the average CEO, and the business is like almost becoming three years. And if that's the case, it's bad news, because if you don't spend it on the R&D, then you can convert that to profit. That's great if you're only there two or three years, but do you kill a company maybe later on? So if I've been optimizing for the first two years in order to make the big buck at the third year, and then thank you very much and bye, that would not be great for the company's future. And of course, he made clear he didn't do such a thing, but he knew people who did. Funny thing is, a lot of them knew people who did. Um, and at that point, you start thinking about Tesco and Terry Leahy and the wonderful Tesco and what happened in the year or two after Terry Leahy left. And you think about Fred Goodwin and the bankrupting of RBS, although he was still there. You think about Philip Green and BHS. And then you think about Carillion. And um, a lot of these people were fated, given knighthoods, won business awards before they, they let the thing collapse. I didn't mention what virtual reality game when I, I was talking about. Well, of course, it's Grand Theft Auto for accountants. <laughs> Sorry, Renee, run out of time. Just, just on the last page. Um, what do we do about it? Like most people, most critics, I'm better at looking at the problems than finding the solutions. I make an attempt in the last, the last chapter. Um, and the point is, is Yes, individuals count, but if we improve the systems and conditions, maybe we can improve the odds of getting more Churchills and less Johnsons, uh, more Rolleses and less Greens. Um, maybe just a bit. And with that in mind, I, you think about systems. A lot of people have written in great detail about these things, but if you look at our, our lack of constitution, our electoral system, our system of corporate governance, financial regulation, if you came here now and you set up something, you wouldn't set up anything in, in, those, in those types of things. You would come, you would, if you started from scratch, you would think how outdated and problematic these systems are. Um, a lot of issues come down to principles. Um, Risk-reward structures, transparency, conflicts of interest, checks and balances, self-policing, long-term incentives, clear accountability because again and again you look at financiers politicians civil servants and the accountability is not there the conflicts of interest are multiple the same accountancy company who's doing the accounts for a company can also audit that company um, the same people sit on their own remuneration boards to set their own salaries again and again all these things simple principles which it shouldn't be happening but it is happening because we've let it happen. And the, the third kind of area I talk about is a review of the professions. Because things like media, accounting, lobbying, law, 
they're all very powerful intermediary professions and they've all become a certain thing but because those at the top are so linked to them they're so linked to the media they won't discuss the fact that the business model of media is broken and that media is, news media is struggling to survive because media is, is off, off it's not part of the conversation politicians are too scared of the media the big accountancy firms have their fingers everywhere they really need reform they, they facilitate grand scale tax evasion and tax avoidance and all sorts of other things but they're, they're too close to power to actually seemingly do anything about it same with lobbying, same with certain aspects of law so we need these are the sort of steps and there, of course there are many more um, but in the meantime it, it struck me that we could, we could just remove certain people from their positions of power perhaps take away the odd knighthood perhaps confine a few people to places where they wouldn't cause any more damage. <laughs> um, and I will leave it at that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Aaron. So, Polly, you want to stay sitting or are you going to stand now? Okay, great. So, welcome to Polly Toynbee, who's going to respond. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> well, it's great to be here to celebrate this excellent book um, just published. Uh, and it spans, its value is it spans so many years of so many interviews. 350 interviews is a hell of a lot. Um, and it's, you know, it's going to stand as a record, I think, as a historical record of a long snapshot in time that will be very valuable for researchers in the future, as well as valuable to read now. And its statistics and its analysis, quite eye-opening, all sorts of things one thinks one knows. Actually, once you've quantified them in the way that you have in this book, it's quite startling um, and very interesting. I think your portrait of the new elite uh, is absolutely right, the new establishment that it is ruthless and selfish and deracinated and uh, devoted to nothing but money. I think that's all true. I think you have a very good description of it. I also think you have a good description of the old establishment, the one that perhaps was people like Anthony Sampson were uh, describing in the anatomy of Britain, uh, which stands as a very valuable portrait of the 50s, 60s um, establishment of the sort of bowler hat kind. I think what I would say is that there's a danger of nostalgia about the old establishment. Uh, I don't think that actually they were any better. They were just much more respectable. Uh, and they did wear bowler hats. Um, I think that that sort of wink and a nod, uh, gentleman's word is as good as his bond. Um, the world of ge gentlemen's clubs, I don't mean the spearmint rhino kind. Um, I think all of that was a cover for very deep corruption. Corruption that was absolutely endemic because things were much less transparent then. There was less scrutiny, fewer questions were asked and so I don't think we should 
allow ourselves any kind of idealizing of, well, in those days, they had a sense of duty. They felt they, you know, they were the backbone of the nation. And uh, I think that greed motivated them just as much. They just didn't earn as much as they do now since the Big Bang of 80, 1986. You know, the top flew off. And suddenly, all of those people were able to earn so much more money. But back then, it was a very close club. As, as Aaron has, has, has uh, written in the book, you know, a tiny group of people that came from just a handful of top public schools in Oxbridge were the only people who got in. And they had aristocrats on the boards because they made it sound respectable. Um, but there was a huge blind eye turned to all kinds of corruption insider trading uh, and very little transparency then either. It was a different kind of bad, I think is what, what I'm saying. You've got a, a noisier, brasher kind of bad now. I mean, you look at things like my fine old bank, the Midland. My family had always gone to the Midland Bank, suddenly has turned into HSBC that is foreign owned and uh, there's no more bank manager in the cupboard as there used to be. There aren't many branches left. Or you look at what's happened to Cadbury's, you, all of our companies being bought up. You look at how many of the FTSE 100 are not really owned by this country anymore. They may be listed here, but neither their chief executives nor their shareholders uh, will be mainly Brit British. You look at the battle that's going on now for GKN, being taken over by a private equity asset stripper, perhaps. A bit of fight back. We'll see what happens with that. And capital has become much more mobile, and so have people as you get, you know, nanosecond algorithmic trading uh, that even the chief executives don't really understand at all. It's all in the hands of a few quants, a few, a few nerds who understand it, but actually the people in charge don't really uh, thoroughly understand exactly what's going on in the, in the world of finance. And there is now there's a, true, um, a new superclass in terms of pay. And we know how much more unequal we've become ever since the Big Bang, really. Well, since the sort of early 80s, the whole of history as taught to I know, my O-level history of social history was of progress, of getting more equal, right up to about sort of towards the end of the 1970s. And it seemed to be an onward, a story of the onward march of things getting better. No more boys up chimneys, more factory acts, uh, trade unions. It seemed an inevitable march of progress that has come to an end, gone backwards uh, and gone into reverse as this superclass has erupted. Uh, I mean, the book I wrote together with David Walker called Unjust Rewards, we managed to get, it was a huge effort, two big focus groups of super earners, one from a big financial institution, one from a big lot of uh, city, city lawyers, finance lawyers. Um, and we had Ipsos Mori in there to tabulate their answers. We had um, the LSE's John Hills there to tell them the truth. And we had a questionnaire, and they had to say, what do they think other people earn? What do they think's the norm? What do they think the poverty line is? The extent to which they were clueless was quite extraordinary. They put the poverty line at twice as high as it actually is. They thought, people, it was then a 40% top tax rate, 
they thought that over half of people in the country uh, were earning in the top tax rate. At that point, it was only 10%. We said, no, 90% of people earn less than what was then about 36,000. It's now about 40,000 to get into that. Uh, and they couldn't believe it. They said, but everybody we know. And of course, everybody they know is a tiny group of people. They could not believe that the uh, median, you know, was around 25,000. Uh, you mean that's the middle level? And they kept falling back, and once they were told, it was explained to them, they kept falling back on a view of the world that was entirely and utterly wrong. And they were in charge of our money, in charge of large chunks of the economy, and absolutely clueless about how it affected most people and how most people actually live. And even when told, they would keep sliding back to excuses and reasons why they were earning 10 million, 5 million, 10 million, uh, and other people weren't. Well, you know, a nurse, they'd say, a nurse, it's a vocation. She's chosen that. Uh, that's what she's chosen to do in life. I've chosen to be very rich. It was quite extraordinary, and we've, we've got all of that there in, in our book. Latest book, uh, just come out, called Dismembered, How the Attack on the State Harms Us All, is about how the effect of the whole of, the, uh, of that culture that's changed so much in the 1980s has been to diminish the state, the value of the state, to downgrade it, to degrade it, the people who work in it, uh, wanting it <coughs> shrunk and reduced, and um, you know, saying the wealth creators are the people who are really the backbone of this country, and they are just the wealth spenders. And we have tried to explain in this book how there is an absolute synergy, how you absolutely need both. You cannot possibly have successful businesses in countries that don't have a strong and successful state. And you look at the Nordic countries, of course, they've got both. They've got successful businesses and a uh, strong uh, state with high taxes. We've looked at, we look in that book at how the ways in which the state is diminishing, even in those things like take back control, looking at the border force and its absolute inadequacies before we've even got to them trying to cope with Brexit and whatever that may bring, that border force is no longer able to check both customs and uh, the kiosks for uh, identity of people coming into the country so that when you walk past those opaque uh, two-way mirrors as you go through customs, there is almost nobody anybody, uh, there anymore. All the targets are for people stamping the passports and uh, guns, drugs, whatever else, polonium, novochoks that might be coming into the country, there is nobody checking them because there just aren't the resources there. And everywhere we looked, we saw the diminishing of the state, the shrinking back, police unable to answer a lot of calls sitting in a control room, uh, having to make very difficult calls as to which, which uh, crises erupting in the course of an evening they would have to go and, uh, uh, and, and deal with first. Uh, you know, this is a false division, the idea that uh, a society doesn't need a strong state as well as strong uh, enterprise and, and business. I just sort of end up with a bit of a word about the word elite. 
Elitism becoming a difficult world. It's simply a term of abuse now that's used to get anyone who's not on your side. I think the most absurd the point at which elite became a redundant word almost was when Jacob Rees-Mogg accused uh, John Major of being part of the European elite. <laughs> at which point you think, hang on, John Major, who came from quite a humble background, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, both of them, you know, Tories and very much part of what anybody would call an elite, quite e extraordinary. The Brexit vocabulary increasingly has become about, uh, you know, a sort of demagogue's vocabulary of treachery, of traitors, saboteurs, enemies of the people, citizens of nowhere. And this sort of level of abuse that's coming from up there, from the people actually in control, suggests that they are perhaps losing control. And anyone who claims that they represent the will of the people, you know is a dangerous demagogue. Uh, and uh, it is an impertinence on a huge scale to say that I represent the will of the people. Um, I think that what's happened now, and this book will be a chronicle of it, is that the extent to which the people in power now have lost control of themselves, have actually lost their marbles, and that people who were uh, you know, outliers and eccentrics, the people with strange views about Europe, have gradually taken over the whole of the Tory party, and then taken over the whole, well not the whole of, but half of the country, maybe with the help of Cambridge Analytics, I don't know. Um, and they are taking us over a precipice, rapidly. Unless, you know, Ken Clark, Anna Subri, a few valiants can pull them back. But claiming it's the will of the people, that's where they're heading off to. Um, and I think it does come out of a lot of this culture that did start in the 80s, a kind of frenetic quality that seized hold of people who used to see themselves as establishment and now see themselves as insurgents. And it's a very peculiar and uncomfortable mixture, I think. Well, what do we think? Here we are in the middle of this crisis. We've had the crash from which we're still not recovered. There's probably going to be another crash or recession quite soon because we're due one, uh, with no resources with which to do it, with huge debts already. Um, it ought to be an opportunity for something else. Your last chapter is quite encouraging. I don't know if it is or not, but you feel it could be a moment. On the other hand, you felt that rather about the crash, the last crash, and you thought, right, this must be the radical moment. And it's very difficult to tell in advance whether it could be or whether it is or not. But the only thing is that we always have to live in hope and we always have to believe that there can be better ahead because I don't think we've, in my lifetime, never lived in times as bad as this now. And your book is partly a chronicle of how that came about. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now to give us some hope, I hope. <laughs> Joe. Joe. Um, well, firstly, I wanted to also congratulate Aaron um, as someone who's also recently tried to write a book. The kind of task of making it exciting uh, is not easy, I found. <laughs> and uh, Aaron does that brilliantly um, with these anecdotes that make you feel like you are right at the heart of the elite or the establishment or whatever we're going to call 
um, the people that Aaron studies. Um, as Bev said, I'm here because I've been involved in Rethinking Economics, which is a student movement um, with 50 groups in 23 countries around the world, all campaigning to reform economics education. And as part of that, I was one of the authors of a book called The Econocracy. Um, I'm going to begin by reflecting on the role of economics in the story that Aaron tells, and then end by thinking about what we, as in all of us here, can do about it. Um, I don't know if that amounts to hope, but it's a start. Um, so in 2011, I went to Manchester uh, to study economics because I felt that understanding economics was necessary to understand the world. By the second year, it was clear that uh, the education we were being we were being given wouldn't help us understand the world. Um, and so we started to campaign to change it. Um, and the existence of rethinking economics groups across the world shows that, that feeling is shared uh, really, really widely. Um, we could, soon came to see that there was a kind of paradox uh, between what we were experiencing, which was that the economics was utterly, utterly disconnected from the reality that, that was going on outside, um, you know, the financial crisis, the Eurozone crisis. Um, but then, on the other hand, uh, you know, we as economic students were being afforded enormous authority um, in conversations with friends and family. People would say, you're an economist, what do you think? Uh, or they'd, they'd make their point and they'd end by looking over at us and saying kind of, you know, does that make sense, economically speaking? <laughs> and, and you'd just be there like, I really don't know. Uh, this, is, this is not what my education teaches me. Um, and, you know, economists were all over the news. Uh, and we knew that when we graduated, we'd be highly employable and we'd get great salaries. And in Reckless Opportunists, Aaron shows us that we students aren't alone. Um, he shows that many of those in power are also highly sceptical of economics. And while they might kind of defer to economists and economic rationale in public, in private they are very aware of its flaws. And so he's got this brilliant quote from Lord Norman Lamont, who's a former Conservative Chancellor, saying, I don't really believe in forecasting. But I've never met anyone who's been a chancellor who does believe in forecasting. You know, Lawson doesn't, Healy doesn't. I would say a degree in economics, it's useful as a way of thinking, but it isn't really a practical tool for politics. And I'm extremely skeptical about economists, frankly. What? <laughs> um, that's an extraordinary admission. Um, and it kind of appears completely contradictory to the social and political status of economics. If Lamont's view is shared by other elites, then what is the value of, a, of an economics degree? And I think Aaron gives us the answer. It's the role economics plays providing a common language and a, a body of knowledge that, that elites use to illustrate to outsiders that they are uniquely equipped to understand and, of course, manage the economy. It's the value of economics in providing scientific-sounding rationales for elite decisions taken without citizen participation or accountability. And it's this value which has driven the kind of growing centrality of economics in government and business to the point where, as Aaron describes, in 2017, three quarters of permanent secretaries either had an economics degree or worked in the treasury or financial sector. Um, 19 out of 45 front bench politicians studied economics, often in PPE. Um, 
And so kind of these observations chime closely with the argument we make in our book uh, that we are kind of living in an econocracy, which is a kind of society with three main characteristics. Firstly, in an econocracy, political goals are defined in terms of their effect on the economy. So areas of life as diverse as education, the arts, mental health services must justify their social value um, and uh, secure government funding by demonstrating that they provide positive returns for the economy. Secondly, the economy is deemed to be a distinct system different and separate in meaningful ways from other parts of the economy, with its own rules and logic. The discipline of economics has grown in status and power on the basis of its claim to understand how this economy works and how it can be controlled. Finally, in an econocracy, managing the economy is left to experts who understand it, who can manage it objectively without letting politics get in the way. This logic kind of is this kind of thing that underpinned the decision to make the central bank independent in 1997, and it's led to the trebling in size of the government economic service since 2000, while the rest of the state has been uh, rolled back. Um, and in this context, what economic students are taught and how they are taught it is a really, you know, central factor in shaping uh, the competence of the next generation of leaders and you know, the future of society. Um, and in, in our book, we report the results of a curriculum review of seven British universities, including the LSE, um, which assesses 172 economics modules. Um, and studying the final exams, we found that only 22% of marks required students to demonstrate any critical or independent thinking. And that went down to 6% in core modules. 48% of all marks required students to operate a model, and only 3% of these required any link to the real world. Finally, economic students are almost entirely exposed to a single economic perspective, neoclassical economics, which provides a very particular and quite narrow approach to thinking about the economy. So in sum, economics education involves memorization and regurgitation of, of abstract theory without any kind of critical engagement, history, politics, and the next generation of leaders are being indoctrinated into a particular way of thinking about and acting upon the economy, which, you know, encourages conformity, spurns engagement with reality, and perpetuates a system of elite-controlled economic policymaking, which, as Aaron demonstrates so well, is, is broken. Um, and that's what we realized a few years into our campaign, is that reforming economics education might allow us to better address problems of climate change or inequality, but we would still be an elite operating within an econocracy. After all, only one in four economic students and academics are women. And uh, in 2010, the Royal Economic Society surveyed its members and found that 82% of respondents were white. Uh, after that, they stopped counting. Um, uh, of 75 Nobel Prize winners in economics, only two weren't white, and one was a woman. Um, so we realized that we were simply the next generation of the establishment, and that reform to our education might help us do our job, but better or worse, but what we really wanted to do was change the model of economic policy making altogether. We realized that 
one result of the status quo is that there's enormous kind of gulf has emerged between those on the inside and those on the outside of the economics club. In the YouGov survey we did of 1,600 people, 61% couldn't pick the definition of GDP, 70% quantitative easing, and 46% the budget deficit. And, you know, who can blame them? Um, you know, because while economics is everywhere, it is a foreign language to most people. Interestingly, 47% of respondents stated that they talk about economics once a month or less. Of course, it's very likely that they talk about economic issues, work, education, healthcare, much more often. But the thing is, is they're not identifying this as economics. And this can kind of connects to a really interesting thesis done by Jack Moss, who's one of Aaron's PhD students, in which he interviews residents of one of the largest housing estates in London um, and asks them what they think and feel about the economy and economics. And he finds that attitudes range from the economy being something that's distant and irrelevant to being a way that elites exercise power and control over them. So it's clearly not simply that elites don't understand economics, but that they have different understandings of the economy and their role within it, and a deep tr distrust and anger towards the people they perceive to be uh, running the economy. So if economics is the means by which elites take what are fundamentally social choice choices without citizen participation or oversight, while at the same time sowing the seeds of growing social instability and polarization. My argument then is that the next generation of economists working closely with citizens and civil society organizations need to democratize economics and economic policymaking because it's only then that we can hold leaders accountable and ultimately create new forms of economic knowledge and practice which can facilitate democracy rather than undermine it. I think that's the way that we as citizens can co-create the rules of the game and stop elites gaming it. And the good news is that that is starting to happen. The student movement has set up a charity called Economy, which campaigns for economics education in schools, provides crash courses in communities and schools across the UK, and runs an economics news and current affairs website for people who don't like economics. <laughs> the RSA have run a Citizens Economic Council which gave a group of citizens a critical economics education and asked them to agree on some collective economic priorities and policies. And the Bank of England has recently agreed to one of the RSA's recommendations to set up citizens reference panels across 12 regions of the UK. And last year, its chief economist, Andy Haldane, who's a, a great advocate for all this, hosted a, a series of town hall meetings where he met and discussed the economy with the people across the UK. So these are small but significant steps, I would argue. Um, and in order to develop a fully-fledged public culture of economics, we need to move towards the scale and popularity of adult education and participation that organisations like the Workers' Education Association and the University ex Extramural Departments achieved in their prime, as well as teaching economics in schools. There is a significant risk that public education communication is one way from economist to citizen, and it's a lecture, not a dialogue. Um, and that would essentially be an indoctrination into a narrow and abstract body of economic theory. 
that would further alienate people and close off our collective thinking about how we might organise our economies. To avoid this, we need new economic thinking and new practice for the 21st century. We need twin revolutions, one to create a new generation of public interest economists, and another to increase public understanding of and participation in economic policy making. These revolutions are both really vital for the future of society and democracy, and they'll spark and feed off each other. Great, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I think I'm just going to kick off while the microphones are, are we ready. Um, Aaron, I, I'm intrigued, and it follows on from what you were saying, Joe, and from you, Polly, is how do we generate? I mean, there's been complete deregulation of almost everything, <laughs> and especially the deregulation of accountability. Where are we, how are we going to rebuild? How are we going to get forms of account? How are we going to hold these people to account, these reckless individuals who have no expertise? How do we hold them to account? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, when, when you first hear that question, you think, how are we? Um, <laughs> but I think we've sort of been conditioned to think, how can we? And um, a lot of these things are far more in our grasp than we think. And, and they often come down to sort of small measures. And um, corporate governance regulation. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's a small measure to say that the person who's, who, who's in charge of a company can't be on the, the board that sets their own salary. I mean, that's a small measure. And there's a number of measures like that. Um, why do we have accountancy companies, the big four accountancy companies, yeah. who basically work for most departments of state, work for 95% of the big companies? Why are they allowed to both audit and offer accountancy services to companies. Why? There's a whole lot of very, they're relatively small things, but you could put direct things in there. In, in, you know, you could rewrite corporate governance if the will was there. You could really investigate accountancy if the will was there. The big four accountants, they turn up at every political party conference and they have big stalls. And they're there and they're milling around and they network and um, they're never taken to task, but they, we, we really need to draw them out into the open and say, well, what's going on? Um, we, need to, we need to have a sort of a royal commission on, on things like what's happened to our accountancy services, and, uh, because they are at the heart of, of hundreds of billions of, of tax evasion and tax avoidance schemes. Um, they are there directly involved. They, they are in and out of the treasury. Again, you know, why do, why do top accountancy firms second large numbers of people into the treasury and out. Um, why is that? Mm. They then they construct the rules for accountancy, yeah. uh, the new rules to regulate accountancy, and then they go back and they tell all their clients how to avoid the rules. Um, there's, I mean, a lot of these rules, they are simpler if we really look at them and there's, there's a will to do it. Um, but yes, um, no, maybe I'm wrong about the establishment. The establishment gathers in too much to stop these simple measures taking place. Um, yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think if you look at the sort of things that Margaret Hodge was doing when she was head of the Public Accounts Committee, if, she, if, you'd put her, if you put her in charge of doing all those things, she went through them all, she absolutely slammed and pasted the, four, the big four accountancy firms. And the government's now talking about, well, maybe we should split them up, but, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. 
Um, there are, as you say, all kinds of remedies. What there isn't is the political will. Um, maybe it's because the financial establishment has such a grip and so frightens. I mean, it's worse you could say, well, it's corrupt because all these politicians are going to go and get jobs in the finance industry later on or going to be on boards. That's very cynical. I think it goes even deeper than that, that they manage to frighten politicians into saying, look, economy is very precarious. Uh, if you mess about with that, everything's going to go. You wait and see. Flight of capital, flight of, you know, we may see it over, over Brexit, that they are very um, quick to take fright, I think, um, all of those sorts of um, people that you've been talking to, those top CEOs, they can walk in to talk to cabinet ministers and scare the living daylights out of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, the political world is not there, and I think it's a question of, of people organising and, and campaigning and trying to, you know, build pressure from the outside. Um, and I think one of the challenges there is that, you know, some of this stuff can feel a bit technical and feel a bit, you know, corporate governance, like a kind of expert area. And so the challenge is to try and kind of bring academics together with others and, you know, create these forms of, of, of building pressure. Um, and I think, yeah, there's, there's stuff to be done there. <laughs> lots of measures, building pressure, holding to account. Great. I'm going to open out to the audience. If you raise your hand, if you have a question, we'll get the mics to you. So one there already, one there already. Um, and if you can say who you are and your affiliation. Thank you. Um, hi, my name's Olin, and I'm a teacher with a charity. Um, I just want to, maybe Polly might be able to answer this best. Do you think that... Corbyn and the Corbynistas and Momentum will, are, are up to the task of uh, changing the economic game. And also, is it not that globalisation is the problem? That even if we do it here in Britain, people can go to other countries and come, and come back. And it's, it's a global problem, not just a British one. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the, when I often think about this, uh, glo the global issue is is often in my mind, and um, you do think about the global the flight of capital, and um, capital is so mobile now that 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 threat is very real. Um, on the other hand, you do see studies of CEOs, and you realise they're a lot less mobile than claimed. Um, a lot of industry, a lot of non-financial parts are not so mobile. Um, I, I mean, I, I wonder, I mean, everyone is in a race to the bottom, it seems. And how do you stop that race to the bottom? Um, but obviously some countries manage it. And, and Well, if you look at the Scandinavian countries who have very healthy economies, higher rates of tax and regulation, all of those, and they're in much better shape. And they've they haven't had a flight of capital. Um, and maybe we have to call their bluff on certain sectors. Um, um, in terms of the Corbyn question, um, that's a bit of a minefield. Um, I personally, yes, I'm not sure Corbyn has the answers at all. 
But I, I think it's time we tried something else, something more radical. I mean, the talk is, oh, that takes us back to the 70s and 80s. Keynesianism is discredited. We can't do that. Um, but it's not as simple as that. I mean, because right now, we're heading back to the 19th century. Um, the, the, the conservative economic policy since the 80s has been more of Thatcher, or, 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 or now harking back to the 19th century. Um, Times have changed, and maybe, maybe some of the old answers will work better. Um, but yes, in terms of other answers, people say, well, we do need more creative economic thinking. Um, some of that's in the Labour Party, some of it's not. Um, some of it, um, Joe may know the answer to. <laughs> We've already established my economics education doesn't <laughs> help. <laughs> well, I think we really don't know. I think it's... Um, from what we've seen of the Labour Party manifesto, it's fairly traditional, really. It's not, it's not really revolutionary. So that you get John McDonnell saying last week, for, you know, I want a major shift of power towards working people. And you think, well, how? Where are the levers? Or what are you planning to do? I'm planning to do, you know, lots of good things in that manifesto, but it's a kind of fairly traditional retail manifesto of here's, you know, something for the students that will keep them happy. Here's something for, we're only going to tax the top 5%, which is a nonsense, or, or corporations. I mean, if you're serious about wanting to actually, you know, restore benefits, restore the state of the NHS and education and everything else that needs doing, you can't do it on just extra taxes for the top 5%. So this is an old-fashioned sort of um, don't frighten the horses manifesto. I mean, I quite liked it, and I was quite glad to see that that was their state of mind because it showed they had a real will to win because that's important. You've actually got to win the votes to get the votes to win. Um, but I don't get a feeling that comes out of Labour or its think tanks, which seem quite weak at the moment, a kind of burst of energetic new ideas and new thinking, and I wish there was, uh, in the way that actually there was before uh, Labour took over last time, I and mean, there really was a hive of activity of people working in detail on all sorts of pol policies, a sense of hitting the ground running when they arrived there. I feel the Corbyn world is quite small and narrow, and they don't really trust anybody else enough to say, come in, you experts, and give us help with this and that and the other, that anybody who isn't absolutely of their mindset, which is quite an old-fashioned one, they're not really interested in talking to. They're not even talking to what are now a very good set of leaders of local authorities, possibly the best set of leaders of local authorities we've had in Liverpool, in Leeds, in Newcastle, in Manchester, uh, really fantastic Labour leaders with great expertise actually running things but they're kind of excluded too. So I kind of wait and see and hope for the best. And one thing we do know, that every single Labour government has always been better than every single Tory government. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so the, the gentleman in the blue anorak first and then behind. Are there any women who'd like to answer, ask questions? Yeah. Do put your hands up. And then uh, I think we'll take three questions at a time so we can condense them. So I think, did you want to ask one? Yes, um, shall I go on? Yeah. My name's Hugh Edwards. I'm ashamed to say that I'm a, a retired chartered accountant <laughs> who worked for Ernst & Young about a million years ago. 
Um, Britain's leadership will also include the opposition politicians. And hasn't the opposition in a, since 2010 has been pretty feeble? Bec uh, we seem to have uh, that the 2015 election, David Cameron spent all his time attacking Labour that because they had spent uncontrolled amounts of money, that's the reason the, the financial crisis happened. It's all Labour's fault. And I did not hear Ed Miliband challenge this once. He was talking about um, the things I believe in, my vision of a more equal society. And, uh, you know, Labour seems very timid about attacking the Tories. And is Jeremy Corbyn any different? You know, I hear Jeremy Corbyn talk about how terrible inequality is, how terrible injustice is in this world. And I talk to people in the Labour, current Labour Party, post um, the, the Corbyn, and an awful lot of them seem to think that if we abolish the capitalist system, that would solve everything. You know, that we have to look at this um, vision, but it, it, it ain't going to happen. So and the question is, is so Jeremy Corbyn um, any good? Sorry, what did you what say? What was the question? Well, t t how, do we, how do our politicians, politicians, what do they need to do now to, to challenge what's the status quo? Okay, and behind you, can we take one there? My name is Antti Häkkinen. I'm a postgraduate from Finland. And <clears throat> there's a trouble at the top. How do you see it uh, in Europe in the future? Sorry, can you say that again? Uh, this same problem, trouble at the top. How do you see it um, in, in whole Europe in the future? So what, how would this apply to Europe? The same kind of uh, thing, yeah. and okay. what will happen? And then, question just behind. Oh, there's one for the woman there uh, behind the man who's just put his hand up. Yeah. Right, I'm uh, Francis Stewart from Oxford, and first I just want to defend PPE. It's a brilliant degree. It's enabled me over a long lifetime to understand the world, to understand exactly like. Polly said, and like Aaron said, what is wrong, but also to go beneath that and to think about how it's to do with interest, it's to do with politics, that neoclassical economics is a facade which is basically a very uh, justification of a very conservative and very capitalist system. And to say, not to say with Aaron that Keynesianism is discredited, Keynesianism was great, it remains great, and it's been discredited as one of the earliest. Nobody dares defend it, but it has a tremendous amount to offer us. So I don't suppose, I don't really have a question, but I think that, <laughs> I think PPE is being knocked unfairly. It's question Just time. <laughs> question, okay. do you can, agree? can I say that some of my best friends went to Oxford and Cambridge, <laughs> and some of them even studied PPE. <laughs> And I am definitely a Keynesian, uh, absolutely. And, you know, he said it all so well. And when you talked about Labour's problem with getting stuck with being blamed for the debt and the deficit, 
Um, and you know, Keynes absolutely had had it right, both about what you should do, but also how difficult it is as a political cell that the paradox of thrift is very, very hard to say to people, actually, you know, we're in deep debt, we must spend a lot more right now, is a very difficult political message. Dead right, but so easy for George Osborne to say, oh no, we've all got to tighten our belts, we've maxed out the credit card. The familiar, and, 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 and Thatcher used to talk about a handbag, that familiar domestic imagery of what debt means translated insanely into uh, national economics. It's, um, you know, it, it, it's how the right has done it all along as an excuse for cutting back the state and cutting back the state. And it sounds utterly plausible. And Keynesianism sounds utterly implausible, doesn't make it wrong. And Joe? Uh, well, I think to reflect a bit on the kind of labour and the economic ideas, I think one thing it has done is really opened up the debate. And so, you know, you've got the FT doing a series on privatisation and, and reflecting on that, and I don't think that would have happened before, um, and I think that's really important. Um, I kind of agree there's a siege mentality, and I think that's kind of hard to get out of. I also think in terms of the kind of feeling that, that we need some more economic ideas, um, part of that is how economics in universities has has narrowed over the years, over the last 40 40, 50 years, um, and so now that the people coming up with, with new ideas are quite fragmented and they're, some of them are in sociology departments and some of them are in geography departments and there are a few you know, isolated pockets in economics departments and so they're quite fragmented and then there's a big gap between them and, and people on the front line and politics who don't have time to really uh, you know, search through the journals and find who these people are. Um, uh, I, I guess the hope or the bit of change is that there are, I think, people now doing more to try and connect. Um, so there's something called the New Economy Organisers Network, which is doing lots of work around trying to uh, think about how you can frame the economy differently and how you can bring new ideas into policy in a way that, that is very you know, understandable, given the fact that most people switch off the minute you say economics. Um, and so I think that's all welcome and should, should be supported. Does anybody want to answer the European creep question? Is this going to happen? Is it happening in Europe? No, well, I was just going to say, um, in terms of that, that um, yes, of course, these problems are not just to do with the British establishment or what's happening in Britain. Because if you look across Europe and you talk to European political watchers and economic watchers, and they have almost as many problems as we do. And, um, America has, has almost as many problems as we do. And um, I mean, we're so concentrated on Brexit, but we haven't seen what's happening across large parts of Europe, and it's, it's, it's worrying. And I think, I mean, I, 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 I say my thesis, but I get people in, in, from France or Holland or whatever, or America saying, well, that's just like what's happening here. Um, so it isn't just a thing of the British establishment. There is, there, is, there is a sort of displacement and a fragmenting and a fracturing, um, perhaps driven by these same things, this sort of globalization, digital economy. Um, and all countries are struggling with it. And what, what the answer is, again, I don't know. Some countries are handling it better than others. And, well, that's uh, what I was going to ask you. Wouldn't you say that, in fact, we are much laxer, we are much worse about regulation? If you look at the way France doesn't let uh, other uh, 
foreigners buy up all its key uh, its key crucial industries. If you look at how the other countries protect themselves better and regulate better, aren't we worse? Would you think we're not worse? Um, well, what I also suggest is regulation isn't necessarily the answer because in some well-regulated countries, you see that the rise of the, the populist far right. You know, I mentioned the Scandinavian countries as, as things to hold up, but if we look at Finland and Sweden mm. and, De and Denmark and the rise of the populist right, and there's a great unhappiness with the political classes and the economic system there, or an anti-elitism, um, there's still a sense of it not working there either, just as there's not a sense of it working in Greece or Spain or Italy or, or, or the UK. Um, so that does suggest a more, more global discussion. Um, and maybe it's because, because our international institutions and our international think tanks and OECD and IMF, and they're all peopled with these same kinds of people with the same way of looking at how to run an economy, how to run a political system as the way. And they're all reproducing that and reproducing the problem. So even in a way, I'm talking myself out as a, <laughs> solutions. But, but, but yeah, yeah. As, as Polly says, as, you know, some countries are managing it a lot better. The, the, the disruption on happiness is not the same. Some countries have perfectly good economies with tiny financial systems. And um, we keep saying we can't do anything about our financial system. It's the source of our economy. But it's also the source of a great deal of destructiveness. Um, and we just have to look at economies with relatively, relatively comparatively small financial sectors doing very well. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think um, that kind of conversation reminded me of a, maybe a companion book for Aaron's, if people haven't read it, um, Thomas Frank's Listen Liberal, which, oh, yeah. which is brilliant. And I think for me what that book, it tells the story of, of America, a similar story in a bit of a different way. Um, but, but also it focuses on the Democratic Party and so I guess on a, a nomi non nominally progressive or, or more progressive kind of party and, and I think what that tells us and that there's maybe something similar in terms of the kind of EU uh, elites or establishment is, is that you can be progressive um, and want the best for your citizens and your population but you can still be just as distant um, and that actually the kind of there needs to be some kind of um, closening between between elites and their populations and some some kind of connections more more regular connections more dialogue more closeness and and that's uh, that's part I think of, of the problem and maybe a solution you, you were suggesting that in the past politicians were closer to the people they came out of, they'd had jobs and things beforehand. I think that one, that, that's partly true, but then there were a whole lot of people who should have got to university and never got the chance to. And now nearly half the population goes to university, get the chance. You know, if something like the WEA is weaker now, that's because there aren't so many people who missed their first chance. So that one shouldn't be altogether depressed about the fact that most politicians are now graduates. That is partly a sign of progress, that we're not, uh, you know, disadvantaging a whole lot of people. And how you, but on the other hand, it probably does make them further away from the people they represent. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I don't... <clears throat> the, 
the question you first asked what about what, am I being nostalgic about the old elite and um, I don't want to be <laughs> that wasn't my intention um, at the same case I don't want to say it's a problem that more people have degrees um, I don't even want to say it's a problem doing a PPE degree I, I, I'm just outlining the patterns I don't want to say Keynesianism doesn't work at all because um, large parts of it do work um, that's a different matter from, from, from trying to, 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 to see why the people at the top have become distant. And uh, it's through a number of things. And the complexity and the distance is, is partly through education, but partly through networks, partly through the pace of life, the complexity of life. People become very expert in small silos. And whether you're on a, a bank, so one banker doesn't know what the other's doing with the same derivative products and, uh, and the people at the top have no idea of the huge risks and debts building up. One department of state doesn't know what the other department of state is doing and how they're alleviating a problem of poverty and they're causing a problem of poverty. Um, but they're all becoming more disconnected through the pace, through change, through expertise in certain tiny areas and no generalised expertise. Um, and too many people at the top, yes, then they have very narrow expertise and no bigger vision or picture. Um, but yes, it's a, it's a matter of trying to see why they become so disconnected and uh, whatever the reasons or the politics around it, it's that they have become f far more detached. Local politicians used to go and campaign in the local areas a lot. Um, now they just go down to, to um, Millbank. And, oh uh, no, I think that's not true. I mean, there's still more of that. Actually, if you look at that, if you look at Barbara Castle or Roger, there are all sorts of people. You look at their <coughs> biographies. They often went and visited their constituents once every couple of months. For instance, Jack Straw, uh, who took over from Barbara Castle, said she used to go from Blackburn. She used to go about once every three months. And then she would always make a point of having her hair done in the hairdresser, <laughs> where people could see her through the window. And she, she was there. But nowadays, I think politicians have to work much harder. It is very difficult to be an absentee. You've got to be there every single week and run your, your surgery or people are onto your case. So I don't think it's a physical separation. I mean, maybe, maybe Jacob Rees-Mogg doesn't go off <laughs> I don't know. But what I know of Labour politicians is that they work like hell. Every single weekend, they are there. Well, actually, I mean, no, I mean, I got that wrong. Most politicians work incredibly hard, and um, they do bounce back and forth. You're right. But um, also, when you talk to them when they get to the ministerial level, their existence moves further away. They can't have that contact, and they talk just to civil servants. They don't even talk to large parts of their party anymore. They don't have the time. They're running around. They do run up to the constituency and back, but they're running on a treadmill in a place in, in Whitehall, and... Um, they're so busy, and they're walk, working 16-hour days, and um, they don't get to come up for air. Um, and they're not seeing other things. They're not seeing the other things, or the wider the picture. Thing. Okay, I'm going to have to stop it now, because we've run over time, so I'm very sorry, I know you, you had your hand up. Um, I'd like to say thank you very, very much to Aaron, Polly and Joe.